Hey folks, this is Bill Meeks, host of Stable Denusion, the at Bill Meeks LA YouTube channel where we do a bunch of cool tutorials related to Stable Diffusion and other AI tools. And to be quite honest, a pretty good hang. Now you might be expecting a new episode of Stable Denusion. Don't worry, it's coming Monday. But I both wanted to swap the day I was releasing, you know, changing out Friday to Monday, to give me a chance to sort of process the news without new news stories popping up so I can make sure I'm giving you guys the most valuable, up-to-date news I possibly can. In tandem with that, over on my YouTube channel, at Bill Meeks LA, I'm starting a series where I'm interviewing cool creators who are using AI to make really cool stuff. These are long-form conversations, and I'm going to be trimming them down and putting them out as bonus episodes on this feed, because there's a lot of great discussion about generative AI, the laws and the controversy surrounding it, and, you know, how to use it, too. So I thought, you know, people who are interested in Stable Diffusion News most likely are going to be interested in discussions about Stable Diffusion and all the mumbo-jumbo surrounding it, too. So, without any further ado, here's our first bonus episode, an interview with Kent Kiersey from Invoke AI. Enjoy, and I'll see you on Monday. I'm always saying that Stable Diffusion is a professional tool, and Kent Kiersey, founder of the Stable Diffusion front-end Invoke AI, agrees with me. Today, I'll be chatting with Kent about Invoke AI, and digging into its features, philosophy, and the current culture and challenges in the generative AI space. Plus, Kent will show us how to turn a sketch into a finished piece of art. All right, well, uh, Kent, it's great to have you on Building Dreams today. Very excited to talk about Invoke AI. Um, you guys got a hold of me because, uh, you know, when I was starting up the channel and focusing on Stable Diffusion, I put the Invoke logo up in my header uh, because I was like, you know, this seems like something that I'll probably be interested in. And then I got busy with the project. And I haven't got into it yet. So uh, but you guys reached out to me because you were like, you're talking about Invoke. Do you use Invoke? And I'm like, no. Uh, so we were going back and forth and we were like, why don't uh, why doesn't Kent come on? And talk to me a little bit about the product and, you know, maybe uh, show me why I should be using that versus automatic one, 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 one. Four. Uh, yeah, four ones. <laughs> yeah, four ones. <laughs> uh, people on, on YouTube constantly put in the comments like, you don't need to say one, 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 one. Just say 11, 11. And I'm like, no, it's more fun to draw it out. <laughs> I've, I've actually heard also auto four. What, rather than, okay, yeah, it's just, it's you know, people people find whatever ways they can to shortcut it. <laughs> Well, uh, first off, Kent, why don't you tell me a little bit about your backstory and how you got into generative AI and, you know, the origins of Invoke AI, too? Yeah, sure. I mean, I um, will go way back. I'll just kind of like, you know, young, young Kent. <laughs> I grew up around uh, computer-aided design tools. My my dad was an architect. Um, he had, I mean, Photoshop, Corel, you name it. He had all of the tools that you'd use because architects use just about everything, right? And I, I was playing around with computers when I was a kid. I was playing around with art and, and kind of digital art uh, before digital art was really even a thing. <laughs> and, you know, I continue to grow up with it. Um, I, I took uh, RIP Macromedia. I took a bunch of Macromedia courses when I was in middle school. I was making like Flash uh, tunes and websites and stuff like that. 
I, I was about to say, at least it wasn't college where you were paying for the classes because yeah, that's yeah, exactly. out the window now. Yeah, Micromedia is gone. Um, yeah, no, the, the uh, Flash ecosystem just got like decimated. No oh, Flash yeah. is no more. Um, Isn't a, I, I believe Adobe Animate is still kind of what Flash became more or less. Like I, I know, yeah. I've never really touched it, but. Well, I, I think, you know, Flash support just died out. Um, I think it, maybe it was even iOS that killed it, right? They weren't going to support it's Flash. Move. So, you know, everyone's moved to other ways of getting content to move around on the screen. You've got HTML5. Now there's like all kinds of ways you can solve for it. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. But it was, it was like, it was still good. And it kind of like brought me deep into this relationship of technology and creativity and like, what can you do uh, with computers? And then, of course, I uh, went to college and didn't get a computer science degree or anything artistic related. I got an economics degree. And so I, you know, fell into business and went into consulting for a few years and then fell into the startup scene building software products. Um, And that was kind of my uh, I, I became really good at figuring out what problems do people have and how can we apply technology to solve those problems? And that's like the job of a product manager is to really just know, like, how do you get value to the user uh, yeah. in a way that they can figure out how to use and it's delightful and all that good stuff, right? It's this kind of like sweet mix of uh, usability and viability for the business. And, you know, how do we how do we make valuable products that actually work for the business and the user? And I did that for almost a decade and I was working as a head of product at uh, my last company when Stable Diffusion came out in August of last year. And I'd been playing around with Dolly too. I got early access to it. My jaw dropped uh, just like everyone else's did when the <laughs> technology like, oh my gosh, what can, look at what we can do. And I, I stumbled on a post, uh, I think it was on Hacker News that was talking about Stable Diffusion. And you can run it locally. These are the hardware requirements, yada, yada, yada. And I'm a gamer, you know, I've been, been a gamer since I was a kid, uh, or at least I used to be a gamer before I had kids and then they sucked away <laughs> all my time. Um, but I was like, I've got, I've got a computer that can run this. I'm, I'm going to start playing around with it. And I stumbled on a small utility kind of like a CLI app that had been started by a cancer researcher up in Ontario. His name is Lincoln Stein, a really, really smart guy. And he had really pulled together a very nice and uh, concise set of tools to run this on your machine. And I fell in love. <laughs> I was like creating stuff uh, for hours on end at night after work. I was, you know, a uh, an immediate uh, AI enthusiast when I had access to it. And, <laughs> you know, I started asking the question of like, how do I help? How do I contribute? How do I make this thing better? And I, I have this uh, maybe it's a bad habit. Maybe it's a good habit. I, when I get excited or passionate about something, my energy just gets like hyper-focused and I really, I really push it at, to, to sometimes to my de- detriment. <laughs> um, yeah. That's the thing is like that, that's from a business sense. That's really good from a personal sense. Not so yeah, much like you can throw so many hours away that you could have been spending with loved ones or something. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's like, no, I got to do the project, the project. Yeah, it's, it's a conversation that me and my wife have uh, quite, quite often. Um, <laughs> is I, get, I get very absorbed with my work and my, uh, my passions. But this became kind of the thing that I was sinking all my free time into. Helped build the Discord community, helped kind of like 
turn it from Lincolnstein stable diffusion repo into invoke and really kind of build this, this notion that invoke was more than just this like, like toolkit or this utility. It was an app. Yeah. Right. And it, it, it had an experience that was thought through. We were thinking about what people needed to do in these tools and how we could make those workflows better. And importantly, we were doing that in open source, right? Which I think, you know, because open source is you know, free, people tend to believe that like whatever you get for free can be just good enough. Uh, and, and a lot yeah. of developers are like, hey, look, we're making it work. That, that's enough uh, for, <laughs> for you. Um, but I, you know, I think we, we brought, brought together a group of people who cared about the experience, right? And we, I think we're one of the first, uh, may, maybe still probably, uh, one of the only canvases that was released. We released our unified canvas in December of last year. I like to think that we inspired a lot of the canvases that came out in 2023. <laughs> um, and that was from, you know, really understanding how the technology was evolving, how people wanted to interact with, uh, and edit images that were coming out of stable diffusion. And, you know, I think it was, uh, it was a wild ride because the technology was changing like week over week. Um, I, when yeah. we first started out, oh yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> it slowed down a little bit, but we're talking about like a new paper every week rather than every day. But like in the early days, uh, of all of this, like, People were using tools like, um, you know, noise shaping. They were using the variations on noise because the, the only way that you could get the image to change and say, I didn't quite like that was, all right, well, what if I change the noise just a little bit so that maybe the fingers don't get wonky, right? And so people yeah. were playing around with all these tools and then image to image came and then you had like in painting and then you had all of these other capabilities that really just kind of exploded. And I think one of the hard things for us is we we have a very strong sense of we need to build something that we want to and can maintain in perpetuity because it's going to be a, a product, right? We're going to build an app. Yeah. And when you do that, um, you can't be adding and removing features all the time, right? You only have to add the things that you think are going to be durable. They're going to add value for the long term. And there are some features that came out in the early days that we had objections to or thought weren't going to be viable in the long term. One of those, for example, was Hypernets. Oh, okay. Uh, Hypernets was late the early days, the the customization. It was kind of like a, a TI adjacent uh, type thing. And that actually came out of the novel AI leak. And there was this whole blow up where Otto got banned from the stable diffusion discord because he incorporated it and stability didn't like that and there was like there's all of this <laughs> this turmoil about this this hyper network stuff and we we took the stance we don't want to build on stolen code we don't need to do that we don't need to worry about um you know ser servicing that use case because we think that there's going to be something better than that in the future that's going to supersede it and now nobody uses those anymore that's complete. It's completely um, obsolete. Yeah, I, I've, I've trained. I've trained one or two, and they're 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 nice, but they're not very precise. And like, you know, it's just it's like it's like you train a, a custom Laura, and then you go to use, it and it's all it's just a little bit wonky, a little bit junky. That's what uh, you know those are to me. Yeah, and, and, and you know, I think that's uh, 
our broader perspective on building the tool is we want it to be integrated. We want it to just work out of the box. We don't want you to have to deal with these kind of irregularities or instabilities with extensions breaking and all that kind of stuff. It just, it all is integrated and works. Now we have, you know, the custom extension uh, capabilities with nodes and stuff like that. That's something we can talk about later as well. But um, the the answer to the question is I stumbled into stable diffusion and then, you know, got, got sucked into the black hole, <laughs> if you will, of generative AI. Um, and it was in early 23 that, you know, we'd start started to see people come into the community that were professionals. And we had, we had set out, you know, from the beginning, we want this to be more than just like, you know, a, a it's not Microsoft Paint, it's the, you know, higher end uh, yeah, yeah. Degree, that degree of, of software. And we kind of set that as being a professional grade tool. Like we want this to be good enough that a pro could use it. And that was Isn't kind it? of always our goal. Then we started seeing pros use it, right? We started to hear about people at game studios and in the entertainment industry. They were starting to use these tools. And that was when, you know, to me, it became obvious that there was a way that we could sustain the open source solution and sell a product to enterprises because they they have needs enterprises have so many needs and they're completely unrelated to what an open source indie user wants right Uh, things like sso things like uh you know multi-user deployments where you've got the ability to share things at scale and protect models and ip like all of that is very valuable for an enterprise but the solo creator just wants to be able to use the latest and greatest in generative AI. And so we kind of found this way where we could build a business around supporting those enterprise use cases and build a really good pro-grade product and also do so in an ethical way where we're open sourcing that solution and in making this kind of disruptive technology available to anyone who wants to use it to create, right? And so we, we kind of found this sweet spot where we can kind of continue the passion project that we all had while also building a way to sustain that for the future. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, a lot of products that start out or, you know, just launches open source, that's kind of, that's kind of a pretty common tactic is like, you know, you, you give the product out for free, get everyone to use it, see how cool it is. And then when you have a company of, you know, a thousand people using it for, you know, a big ad campaign or something, they can come and pay you, you know, whatever the cost is for support. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's uh, there's a lot of different ways the open source model can work. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that if you look at the open source uh, ecosystem, there's a lot of ways that it can be dysfunctional as well. Yeah, um, and that's you know one of the things that we did um, is bring on someone who's done this well. So our one of our board members, her name is Abby Kearns. She was the CTO at Puppet and also the CEO of the Cloud Foundry Foundation. So she's done a lot of open source um, kind of business models and kind of working in that space. Yeah. And she's given us a lot of really good guidance on how do we do open source right? Like how do we align with what community is expecting of us? How do we align with what the business's needs are? And how do we do that in a way that's sustainable for the long term? And so I think we've we've found a really good balance between that and our community. I mean, 
uh, I, I, if you ask them if they feel like we've done anything where we've held back some cool feature, we, we haven't, right? We've released a lot of cool new stuff uh, that actually came out of our commercial product. We've released it open source. So <laughs> one example is we have boards and kind of gallery management features, and we've built that for our commercial users because that's part of their workflow. Yeah. And you can imagine a world where it's like, okay, upgrade to the pro product to get boards and gallery management, stuff like that. But we open sourced it. We made it work locally. Um, and I think there's uh, something to be said for making good on the promise you make to the community. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I, I love too that, you know, you, you, your corporate clients and stuff, you, you build stuff kind of with them in mind, and then you still pass off the benefits to the open source right. community. Right. I, yeah, I, I love open source in general. Like it's always, it might be a little hippy dippy, but it's like, we're all working together and pushing forward on this one thing. And you know what? It's secure because you can go in and check the code yourself if you want to. It's a beautiful, beautiful, uh, infrastructure that's kind of built, built online over the past several years. I, when I was a kid, it was called like freeware and shareware and you didn't necessarily get the source code. But. No, you, and maybe you got some extra stuff with it, right? Uh, maybe an extra browser extension or five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a nice little yeah. uh, little Trojan virus, little worm. Yeah. <laughs> We've talked about the product a little bit already, but in your opinion, what are some of the things that sets Invoke AI apart from other flavors of stable diffusion front ends? Yeah, I mean, I think the probably biggest one is that out of the box, you have all of the things that you find a professional needing in this space. I mean, you, you've got control nets integrated into the experience. You don't have a disjointed, like two extensions that you have to plug in and the extensions yeah. don't work together and you're switching between it's, it's built in and integrated. So when we released control nets, we released it on all of our kind of standard image generation tabs. We also integrate it directly into the canvas. And so now with the canvas, when you're kind of going around and editing a piece, not only can you use control nets, you can actually very easily take a section of the canvas and pass that in as the control. Oh, nice. And then, you know, amp up your denoising strength so that you've got the control for that area, but you're now kind of giving a lot more freedom to the model to generate stuff. And so, you know, we've thought about this as a very integrated experience, and that's probably the biggest differentiator is that we do that, that we approach it from an integrated way and we're trying to make it easy to use. Isn't you know, I, I think this space requires a manual to get up to speed on, right? Like all the terminology, what does it mean? <laughs> How do I use it? Like, what does it mean to be exposed to the intricacies of the model and the configuration Isn't... options that are available? It's yeah. not as easy as Midjourney or Dolly, where you just say something and it goes, does it. you have to know how it works and you have to know what you were passing in to control that generation. But that's why it's so exciting and, and useful is because you can control it. You do have the ability to go in and control what the AI is generating. And that's why I think, you know, this ecosystem is so powerful for professionals and why, why a lot of the, the artists that we're working with, when they look at our tool versus everything else that's out there, they're like, Oh, I get it. Oh, I get it. Right. Like now I could actually make my workflow faster rather than feeling like I'm just, you know, rolling the dice on some mid journey prompt. I'm like, I'm generating in my style using a fine tuned model or a Laura, and I can have it 
finish out my sketch for me. Like stuff like that is really, really interesting. Yeah. Like a mid mid journey, like, um, it's a bit better, I think, but, but in, you know, Dolly has the quality going on for it versus stable diffusion. Oh, for sure. But you know, it, both of them in a lot of ways, when I've played around with them, they, they feel like cool toys. They're not necessarily, you know, professional tools because a professional artist, one of the big things that defines art is intention, right? And you have an idea that you want to execute. And if it's just, you know, you know, put a quarter in the gumball machine and hopefully you get a blue raspberry, um, it, it can be fun. It can, you know, hit those uh, synapses in your brain for pleasure and stuff like that. Like, oh, I did something. But it's not really good for putting together a project with intention. You know? Right. I mean, the, the way that we think about it is, you know, there's this there's this process where an artist has the conception, right? They imagine something, they envision what it might look like in, in reality before they put pen to page, right? And then they realize that. And historically, or in the past, you had to do that from start to finish, zero to 100. But now, if you know how to pass in those kind of initial points of the con- the concept, right? So yeah. Here's kind of what I'm thinking from a, a words perspective. Here's a sketch of the idea, the composition of what I'd like to see, the style I'm going for. Maybe we've got a lawyer that's trained on your style. That now you've given all of the raw ingredients for the AI to give you something that is 90 to 95% where you want it to go. And then you can take it to the finish line, right? And so this is this is an acceleration of workflows rather than a replacement of the artist. It's it's really the way that I, I like to think about it. It's a modern apprentice, right? So yeah. you used to train uh, apprentices in your style and, and teach them how you make art and then delegate some of your work to them so that you could service all the clients that you have. And that is what AI is going to do for artists, right? Is going to be the apprentice. It's not going to do your job for you. You still have to work, right? You still have to come up with the concepts. That's your job as the the kind of artist is to envision what is going to satisfy the requirements you have for whatever project you're working on, whatever creative uh, themes and, and um, works that you're doing, that that's your role is to provide the humanity. And I think these tools are really just more augmenting that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's another thing to like, uh, any, you know, typing in the prompt and you get something that looks kind of cool. Uh, but you know, if you look at it closely, there are flaws. It might not reflect your intention entirely. And that pro like for me personally, that process of taking an image from good to production ready asset, I can still pour like four or six hours into that, you know, just going through and doing all the little detailing, upscaling it, all this stuff, adding, adding text, (laughs) you know, is a big one, Uh, stuff like that. And, uh, I don't think people, I mean, a lot of people, you know, they jump in, they make some stuff, and they just post everything willy nilly without a lot of thought into it. But a, a lot of people don't realize that you you can and you should put a lot of effort into the image after we're done with the AI stuff. You know, because that's kind of the difference between a cool toy and a professional tool, and a uh, someone who's playing around and a professional. And, and I think that's when you think about what is the biggest difference for Invoke we're building for that use case. And, and and I'll be like very honest, I don't think we're we're not to the final state of where we want to be. Yeah. Because my vision for this workflow is going to change dramatically uh, over the next few years as technology develops. 
But what I'd love to get to is where you're riffing, right? You're with riffing with a partner that knows yeah. how to help you get to that final thing that you've envisioned, right? Mm-hmm. And that's like, that's going to take a lot of innovation. It's going to take yeah. a lot of work. I mean, you called out to your point. I think, you know, what, what Dolly 3 has right now that's really magical is they've integrated the large language model into the process to understand like where should things be? What do these words all mean positionally? It's like, it's got a lot better uh, coherence with your prompt. Yeah. But we can get there with open models. Like that's gonna happen. And I think right now we're, we're finding all of these ways that an artist can control the generation yes. process. And we have a lot of ideas about how we can augment that and integrate those together so that it is a really like seamless experience for an artist. And that is where we want to get to. And that is what I think is really exciting about the frontiers of creativity right now is when you, when we get to that point, people are going to be able to create like insanely cool stuff. Like I am so excited about what we're going to be able to do because you know, there's a lot of people out there who are, they have great ideas. They've got great concepts and they don't have enough time in the world to make all of those real. Mm-hmm. But with this stuff, we're going to see like them able to do all of those things. And that's, that's really exciting for me. Yeah. Um, that, that's That's kind of, it's very similar to my situation. Cause you know, like I, I've worked in graphic design professionally. I've been using Photoshop since like 1996 but, you know, I'm not a great freehand artist. I can put something together in Illustrator and it looks okay-ish. But, you know, using these tools to sort of, you know, like lock in on a style, develop it, train a model, play around with it, train a new model on the data from that and kind of dial in re- and refine it. it. It's amazing how much these tools can sort of allow you to develop a particular style, even though, you know, according to some people, it, it's just trained off all the artwork of, that ever existed. You know? Yeah. I mean, uh, we, we can dig into that one because I think that's maybe a, an interesting um, way to, to view this. Because what I've found, I've talked to a lot of artists. Um, I, I mean, obviously, that we're, we're building for artists, so we, we need to engage with them. Mm-hmm. And we actually brought on um, Peter Moorbacher. He's a pretty well-known artist who's done a lot of work with like Wizards of the Coast. He did some of the big Magic the Gathering blocks. Okay. And he's got this really cool project. I have a Magic the, Ga- Magic the Gathering pack right here. Like, I, I, haven't so played, I haven't played it in 10 years, and I have some kids. And I was like, you know what? We should do something together as a family. Let's play Magic. It's so fun, right? It's like yeah. it's the easiest uh, way to bring back your own childhood. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, you know, he did some of my favorite uh, blocks in Magic Gathering. He did the Theros block. Theros is like, oh, so cool. Um, but we've, we've been engaging with uh, people like him because, you know, one thing that I think any artist who's actually engaged with these tools and prompted for their own style, what they'll find is it doesn't really do a good job right? It, yeah. It's kind of bad at producing your style. And, you know, I have this, this um, image that we generated where we were trying to, to uh, generate it in Peter's style. And it, it looked terrible. It was so bad. But we trained Alora on his art style. And we generated with that and the difference is night and day. When you have a specialized Laura that's trained on an artist's style, then you have a really, really powerful way of kind of invoking that style when you 
tell the system I want it to be like this. And so the way that I think about this is like th these large foundation models that scrape all of the pictures on the internet, they're not really developing a strong understanding of an individual artist's style. Yeah. They're developing the patterns of how to understand just basic words. Like what does a sunflower look like? What is the color red? Like what do these words mean in pixel space, right? Like how do we make images that look like this word you gave me? Yeah. But they're not great at copying styles. So it's not really a good um, comparison to say that it's like taken the style and replicated it. But I do think that there's a lot that needs to be investigated around how we ensure that, you know, these types of specialized models are, you know, they, they have some protection from those, right? Because like, I, I do think that there's a lot of models that are being trained on an individual artist's work and then being distributed. Yeah. And that is a I mean, that, that's not a copyright issue then, because I think the training piece is going to be seen as fair use. What that becomes is like affiliation or right to publicity issue. You're like using their name to promote your, your Laura or your style, whatever it is. Yeah. And that's, that's where it's, it's a completely different issue because you're competing with them on a different dimension. And that's maybe where artists need to focus is pulling down models that are intended to replicate their style and focus less on the foundational models. Cause Foundational yeah. models are going to give artists access to do things like train their own auras and have yeah. that as something they can own. So, you know, deep diving on the copyright stuff, I pay a lot of attention to what's going on in this space because I think that there's a, there's a future where artists, um, they actually don't benefit from the technology. They don't get ownership and it's because they misunderstood what is and, happening right now. We're seeing the next generation of intellectual property be defined right now. Yeah. And we don't want that to be something that they can sign the rights away to some client or customer and have no rights to train their own model because their style should be theirs. For for me, like uh, as far as the style and stuff, like I, I've compared, you know, uh, you know, doing a fine tune training to custom lore and whatnot. It's like it's basically like, you know, you're an art student in art school and you're taking a class on Van Gogh and you go and you take a ton of notes on Van Gogh. Oh, the paint's a little smeary here and he has this certain way, that certain way. And then you go back and you do your homework And basically what Stable Diffusion does is it goes back and it does the homework and it looks at all your notes. And mm -hmm. uh, that, that's kind of the metaphor I use. Um, do, do you have a better one or does that sound about? I mean, I think that's a, that's a fair, um, it's a fair assessment of what's happening is it's, it's learning the patterns between works. And if you, if you dig into what copyright, what copyright specifically is intended to do, it is to pr promote effectively the monopoly of a creator to distribute their works mm -hmm. for, you know, economic benefit. Right. Yeah. And I think where the question comes is, um, when you do that and an artist looks at your work and is inspired by that because they see, you know, oh my God, I love that style. I love that thing. What's copyrighted is the specific expression. Is that artwork? Yeah. What is not copyrightable and you don't want to be able to be copyrighted is your style. Like is style is not something you can copyright and we don't want it to be a copyright issue because the moment we enter the world where your style gets copyrighted, everyone's going to start getting cease and desist from <laughs> Disney and like all of these other big corporate companies that have copyrights on everything because they have all the styles. They have like 
they've got examples of all the styles that they could probably make a case you've taken a little bit of inspiration from. Yeah. And that's like art is riffing on culture, right? right? That is what art is, is to kind of interact with the culture and add something new that is not entirely novel because you can't you can't create anything in the world that's entirely novel without having had an interaction that inspired you to learn something about the world you're interacting with. I don't think there's any artist out there either who 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 wants to, you know, pass laws that wouldn't allow them to use things like reference images, you know, studies on various artists like, OK, I'm going to do like six Rembrandts uh, in that style and kind of learn his style while I'm doing it. Like, I don't think any artist wants that to happen either, for sure. No, and, and I think this this is where um, it, it's a it's a hard conversation to have, right? Because I think that there are real implications of this technology, and there there are like the landscape is changing. When when Photoshop came out, you had artists who had learned how to you know manage uh, manage the drip off of an airbrush. You know they had learned they'd gone through the painstaking process of learning how to do it right so that you didn't mess up the work that you're kind of completing yeah and now you don't even have to worry about that because you've got an undo button right mm -hmm. of, well you know this is this is unfair this is a different this is different than with the way we've done things and i think that's the same type of backlash that we've got right now is we have a new technology it is changing the rate at which people can create it is providing a different level of competition and, and, and like, to be clear, I, I understand and agree with all of that. Um, but even models that are trained on, you know, let, let's say that we go down to the, the most ethical set of data that you possibly can get, that is going to be a real technology and it is going to change workflows and that will continue to exist. And so we have a technological reality of there are these models that will generate images. And the, the question we have to ask is, as creators is, do we like this world where we go pay somebody else to use their foundation model and hope that they continue to exist forever and that we won't lose our training and that we can continue to do that in a way that's not going to be so expensive that we don't make any money? Mm -hmm. Or do we like the world where artists have access to train a model on their own, have the ability to own that asset? and can do so in perpetuity, right? They, they have the model because these, these are openly licensed weights, right? Yeah. And this, this, this question right now is super critical across all of AI. I mean, Biden just re recently issued an executive order that has this whole host of areas that the government is going to focus on with AI. And the thing that we have to kind of ensure as we progress is that we don't, we don't go to a fully closed centralized model of AI, because I think that's a really bad road for us to go down, both from a competitive sense, but also just for, for accessibility to the, the average person. This, this technology is going to change society. It's going to change the way we operate. And yeah, I would like to live in a world where people have access to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's not you know locked behind a eight hundred dollar a year subscription from Adobe, and right. then you know, like Adobe, like I, I really like the the generative fill and Firefly and all that, but it's so cautious about like I I try and someone has a weird knee in a picture and I try and fix the knee and they're like oh you can't do that safety reasons it looks like half, yeah. looks like a boob or something like that like yeah. I'm like I'm just trying to fix the person's knee like. I, I think too, you know, art 
there there's art that's nice and it's a nice pastoral painting on the wall and then there's art that's kind of like uh extreme but but to a point and stuff or there might be nudity in it or violence and you know these these uh corporate controlled models like adobe firefly they immediately no nope nope i'm i'm not dealing with any of that and i think it in a way, I think that kind of like that's a censoring the artist and hampering their artistic ins- expression a lot versus the open oh, source uh, stuff. Hundred percent. I mean, I think um, as a society, we've got to answer these questions, which is: is it the role of the application to stop the user from doing something, or is it the user's responsibility to own what they generate? And you know, there was a good example of this with. Um, there was a lawyer who had used chat GPT in some brief he submitted in court and it came up with all of these fake references to cases that didn't exist. And, you know, the, the lawyer got into trouble and there was a big <laughs> article about it and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But I think the important thing is it's not that we're going to go say, oh, that happened and that was bad. We should not allow those use cases with AI or we should not allow chat GPT to like put stuff out or answer that question. But when you submit something into the public domain, you own it, right? You are responsible for that thing. And we already have laws for all of this stuff. Like if I created something that um, was obscene, right? There's there's laws against obscene things. Yeah. And it doesn't matter how I generate it. I could draw it. I could AI generate it. Like there's already laws for this stuff in society. And and I think this goes back to your your point about art art has always had friction with those laws because as a society, we are trying to figure out where is that line. Yeah. But we have to allow that flexibility because culture changes, societies change. We have kind of like an evolution as a people. In the moment we lock it down and say, you can't shift that line anymore because we made a law that you know restricts the ability for the AI to produce anything that we don't agree with. Yeah, you no longer have that ability to evolve. You no longer have that ability to adapt, and that's what kills things. So I agree with you completely. <laughs> nice. So, um, okay, let's get back to invoke a, a little bit more here. Invoke AI. Uh, so, what specific uh, features or tools within Invoke AI do you be- believe have the most uh, significant will have the most significant impact on professional creatives like myself? Yeah, I mean, I think custom models. I think are probably one of the most important elements. You know, when you're when you're dealing with just a basic stable diffusion output or even some of the fine tunes, what you find a lot of times is, you know, a combination of I don't know the exact words that I want to use to prompt this to get what I'm going for, like my style or, you know, the 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 vibe I'm going for. It's kind of like you have to to hack around with words and prompting and as an artist that's not really your strong suit you're not you're, it's not like i don't know what machine learning models picked up uh, <laughs> in the training process to know the exact words to use yeah but what an artist is really good at is let me show you what i mean right let, let me show you 10 examples 20 examples this is what i'm going for this, when i mm-hmm. say this word this is what i mean and that is what is happening when you train a Laura uh, or a textual inversion, right? Yeah. You're, I use this analogy a lot. The, the model is kind of like the dictionary, right? You've got all of these words and all of those words have developed some meaning in the model's mind. It's like, okay, that's what a sunflower is. 
And when you use textual inversions, what you're kind of doing is adding a new word into the dictionary that can only reference existing definitions, right? You're adding a new token, but you're, you're pointing to stuff that's already in the model. When you add a Laura, you're adding a new definition into the dictionary, right? There's like some new content that you can kind of shove into the dictionary. And what you want to be able to do is have an easy way to say my style. I want a picture of this in my style. You just want it to be so like succinct when you're prompting that it just knows what you mean. Yeah. Right. And that's one of the big tools here is custom models. And so when you think about professionals having a custom model, that's, that's the most valuable thing you could have is something that really understands your work and your body of work and your style and your aesthetic. And what we have kind of built a platform for is offering that open source capability to run that to everyone. And then if that professional is on a team or works at a large company, and you're talking about a custom model that's now trained on the IP of, you know, everything that a certain company has generated, because now it's going to really generate everything we need to going forward, that starts to involve the bigger questions around how do we keep that secure and how do we make sure that it is accessible and the workflow that you develop as an individual can be replicated across our team, right? Because if you train a model, you know how to talk to it. But if you have a model and a team, you need to make sure that you can share all of that information and that you know the right trigger words from a compliance perspective, that you know how it was trained, Um, like all of this stuff that starts to become problems only at scale. That's what we solve in our commercial products. So we're really (laughs) focusing on making the tool accessible in our open source tool and then helping professionals deploy that at scale with our commercial products. And that's kind of like the, uh, the way that we think about it is giving professionals this tool across, you know, whichever life cycle or stage that you're in, in your career, whether you're on, on like an individual creatives and you're doing, you know, freelance work or you're at a large organization and you need to work on this with a team. We want to be the tool that is used in that workflow. Yeah. I I think you guys have done a really good job positioning yourself that way too. Cause like I said, you know, my awareness of the company was basically that, you know, this is, this is the pro level tool. This is the pro level tool. Just out of curiosity, um, you know, you mentioned, you know, training custom or fine tuning uh, models and training custom LORAs and things like that. Does Invoke AI have any features built in for that? Or is that something you still kind of have to go out and, do like a Koi SS training on or? Yeah. So we have, uh, if you look in our GitHub organization, like the Invoke AI parent that sits above the Invoke AI repo, there's another repo called Invoke Training. Um, and we have scripts that have been written for LoRa training, Dream Boost training, like whatever you, you need to do to create your own personal model. We have scripts for that. What we don't have yet is a UI for that. Gotcha. Uh, but that's kind of like on the roadmap. Um, and if there's any open source contributors out there who want to help us make <laughs> a UI, you're welcome to um, submit yourself to our high bar and and standards <laughs> in order to help us get there. Um, but yeah, we we have those scripts. You can run those locally. They, I would say, offer everything that you'll get out of uh, a Koya. We just don't have the UI yet. Understood. Understood. Um, I'm guessing that's probably pretty top of mind, though, because I mean, like, 
any like if you go to like I I don't, I don't want to name any companies you're actually working with I might uh, but like a Disney or something like that and they want to train you know the Mickey Mouse Laura like I I think you know a team working on something like that is going to want something that's sort of like like a unified program where they can do everything in there you know they well, they exactly. can they can train they can they can build they can you know fine tune and you know adjust the dials on the model until it's exactly what they want. Well, so this is, this is where, you know, uh, I'll share a little bit about our like long-term, um, thought process about this. We're, we're working with customers right now to help them train models, right? As part of our professional services, when, when a customer is working with us, if they want us to help them, we will. And our approach is a little bit more nuanced than what you'll find on some of the tools that are out there on the web. Like if you go and look at image generators, right? There's like a thousand image generators <laughs> online all using stable diffusion, right? They all yeah. sell you some sort of promise of like, you can use your stuff, creating your style, and then you have an image generator. And the problem with that is if you throw just a bunch of content into a bucket and say train on it, and it's got like rudimentary tags and it's very basic, you're going to get garbage. Yeah. Right. It's going to be very ugly. It's not going to be really coherent. So what we're doing right now is we're trying to figure out like, what are, what are the different ways that we can make this self-service in a real way for an artist where it's not about knowing all of this machine learning training lingo and like, what is a learning schedule and like, you know, all this kind of stuff. It's like, we want to make it accessible. But we yeah. want to reach that level of quality that this is pro grade, right? <laughs> so that you know it's high quality. And so right now what we're doing is we're manually doing this with customers. We're building out a model strategy. So we say like, what is your objective? What is the use case that we're going to solve with a model? We, we help them assess whether that's viable or not. Like, okay, you want to create this type of asset, you know, you know, focus on this workflow in your organization. Let's see if we can make that happen. What assets do you have? Do you have enough images to create a Laura like for that use case? Or do we need to work together to help you develop that asset library? And then in the training process, really understanding the captions that are associated with each image so that you have enough diversity and you have enough control from a, a token perspective that you can really use this in a generalizable way. And then we're helping them deploy that to their team in info, right? And, and you kind of brought up like a, a Disney level enterprise. Well, you can imagine, you know, what what do you what problems do you have at a Disney? Well, you've got a team that's working on Project X and a team that's working on Project Z. And Project X and Project Z, they don't have the same models. They don't use the same models. And maybe Project Z is like a super secret project. We don't want anybody to know about Project Z. If somebody were to leak that we were working on Project Z, it would ruin our big marketing campaign, whatever, right? Like this, this problem yeah. happened universally across enterprises. So what you need is a really, really strong way to manage those models and the life cycle of those models and, and ensure that they're secure. And that is all the stuff that we've been focusing on building for our commercial product. So we have, you know, role-based access controls on models. You've got projects, you've got very isolated ways of controlling the deployment. And like you said, all of that is going to be tightly integrated and just work at scale long-term. But we're working on building the training tools right now so that you actually get higher quality stuff in a self-service environment without needing 
to engage with like a professional uh, ML engineer to help you develop. Yeah. And, uh, you, you know, your your point, I really like your point, too, about sort of uh, corporate workflows, because, you know, I worked for a design team uh, for a corporation for a number of years. And yeah, it's easy to make the tool work. It's not so easy to make it work for the user and make the user work with it. And yeah, it's like, like like that's a lot of what you guys focus is, is trying to, you know, iron this out and make it consistent and, you know, accessible for people who aren't, you know, diving in and, you know, messing with their Ben B folders and whatnot. Yeah. I, I, if I never hear another Python issue again, it will be <laughs> a miracle. <laughs> like, like I just, I just know I've probably, I've probably dug 20 hours at least this year into like dealing with Python issues because I installed an extension and it breaks something and then I have to wipe out the whole thing and where's all my stuff? I need to get all my stuff back in it. It, it can be yeah. rough. It can be rough. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll go ahead and end off here. Uh, looking ahead, what is your vision for the future of creative AI? And how does Invoke AI fit into and power that vision for, you know, larger companies and things like that? Yeah, I, I think the way that we see this technology evolving is there there is no one model, right? And I think that's, that's the maybe the pinnacle of... Uh, creativity is that everyone has their own style. Everyone has their own way of creating. And so in a world where AI is kind of embedded into an artist's workflow, that style is evolving. That that aesthetic is evolving. It's, it's contextual to the project you're working on. It's contextual to the work. And we want to be the tool that allows artists to engage with that model seamlessly and evolve that model as their style develops or as their project changes, right? That That's where we fit in. Is it? You know, in a, in a lot of ways, we see the work that we do in open source as the right way to do AI development because I think that there's a lot of different ways you could build a very cool closed source system uh, and, and probably, I'm sure, make a lot of money doing that. Um, but with the level of disruption that exists in the world right now with AI, I think making the tool accessible and actually giving that disruptive capability to everybody is it's the right way to ensure that people have access to this. And, you know, our commercial work, like I said, you know, we, we make the cutting edge and AI available to everyone. And then the stuff that we're charging for in our commercial product is the stuff that you need to make this work in a business. And, and we think that that's like a relatively balanced and fair way of running a business and growing this this tool. I think the biggest like existential threat to generative AI right now is people's lack of understanding of it. And uh, the, the fact that they, they don't understand how it's made to begin with and they don't understand how it's used on a day-to-day -day basis. I think a lot of professionals are definitely getting there. So I, I, I love that. I, I, it's really smart too that you have this product focused on professionals because you know over the past year or so you know you see a lot of people saying oh AI sucks like this is ripping off artists and then slowly you see those people over the course of three or six months or well maybe I'll try it out or maybe you know I got this lens app and that's pretty cool maybe I could do something with it and I think I, I don't know the, I, this is probably pretty self-serving, but anything that can sort of push this technology forward in this art form, I think, forward is a good thing. And, you know, it's important at the same time to not let the big companies, the Adobe's of the world, the Disney's of the world, 
lock it down so you know average people like me can't use it i think that is what we see as our role um you know we we're working with artists we're working with um educational institutions um we're trying to help people understand what this technology is because i, I you know i think there's that that phrase which is any sufficiently advanced technology is you know, it's magic, right? Like people yeah. see it as magic. We are trying to make that magic available to everybody. We're trying to to, to turn everyone into wizards, maybe, <laughs> or, or invokers, if we we can be so uh, so coy and on the nose. Um, but you know, we we want to build the future of AI the way that we think it ought to be. And, I, and I'm a very optimistic person. Um, I I don't look around at the doom and gloom of AI. Um, with with as much fear as everybody else does i i recognize there are going to be challenges but i think if we if we apply what this technology can do to our work and we do it in a right way and in a way that it like respects humanity i think that we have a really really bright future uh both for creatives and and for everyone else i think that there's a lot that we could do with this technology as as humans that will make us better off yeah, and I love that you guys are focused on that too, like coming at it because, you know, with all of the controversy surrounding this, if you're going to push, like I'm facing this problem too, not on the same level you guys are, but you know, if you're going to like embrace this technology and brand yourself with this technology, I think it's very important to think about all the critics in every moment and every decision you make and try and do things that are unimpeachable, <laughs> you know, because if, if you do one thing, if you have one little slip off, uh, they're already against the technology. They're always going to be against the technology because they're like, you know, I looked into it and they were still doing a bad thing. So I, I, I love your perspective. on it. Thanks, Bill. Cool. Uh, well, uh, if people want to check out Invoke AI, uh, what are the minimum system requirements and where they can they grab it to uh, download it? Yeah, so we have uh, downloads available on GitHub. We have them packaged up in a zip file. You can download those and run a script that will walk you through the installation process. Um, we are working on making that installation process even easier. It should be relatively painless, but you know it still happens every so often that you're running into an issue. Uh, we also have a Discord channel that you can get help uh, and support in installing. Uh, minimum system requirements. You know, I think you know we've seen people with as little as four gigabytes have success. Uh, you're hey, typically going to RAM you're talking about. Just to be clear, four gigabytes of VRAM. VRAM. And so card, yeah. you're going to need a graphics card, a dedicated graphics card on most PCs. You can use a MacBook, an M1 or M2 MacBook. Um, those will operate uh, a little bit more slowly than you'd find on a dedicated GPU, mm -hmm. um, but they'll work. You can generate pictures. That's the most important part. <laughs> um, if you've got a NVIDIA card, you're good on Windows and Linux. Uh, if you have an AMD right now, uh, some AMDs work on Linux. They don't currently work on Windows. Uh, working with AMD to try to, to get support over on the Windows side for AMD cards. But for now, uh, Windows official support is just uh, NVIDIA. And four gigabytes will get you in on Stable Diffusion 1.5. If you want to use some of the more powerful models uh, like SDXL, we typically recommend a card that has no less than eight gigabytes of VRAM. Um, obviously, if you have more, you're in the clear and you will find it uh, works faster. Uh, it's really what um, more VRAM gets you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, 
I, I'd say, you know, if, if you're a gamer who kind of keeps up on things, you likely have the hardware you need to run. 100%. Okay, uh, Ken, well, I want to thank you again so much for joining me today. This has been a great conversation. I've learned a lot. And as soon, uh, literally as soon as I hit end recording, I'm going to be installing Invoke AI. So thank you. For awesome. That. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a pleasure. And uh, if you run into any challenges or want to nerd out about Invoke, just hit me up. Absolutely will do. Read the stories and join the team at everlyheights.tv. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Everly Heights. Watch us build Everly Heights in building dreams by subscribing to at Bill Meeks LA on YouTube. Get access to the custom stable diffusion models we're using to build Everly Heights, as well as our morning meeting production diary by supporting us at patreon.com slash Everly Heights.